Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that it is Friday and we are all here ready to go. We've got a very exciting show for you. I hope you've had a great day and I hope you're looking forward to a great weekend. I'm going to start uh, my show with uh, Dr. George Barna. I always look forward to chatting with him. He's a professor at Arizona Christian University and director of research at the Cultural Research Center at ACU. He also founded the Barna Group. You may remember that, of course. And he's been author of over 50 books addressing cultural trends and leadership and spiritual development. He is often called the most quoted person in the Christian church today. He graduated de summa cum laude from Boston College, earned two master's degrees from Rutgers University, and has a doctorate from Dallas Baptist University. I don't want to act superior, whereas I was able to get all my schooling done in one place. George, welcome to the show. Wait a minute. Where's the quantitative research that says that's superior? I'm not buying it, buddy. All right? Yeah. I, I knew that would get me in trouble. Good try. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm good, thank you. I, I was startled by um, your article that you uh, wrote about the future of faith in, in the United States with millennials. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture. But, you know, again, the reason we do research is because you can't effectively change things unless you know what it is you're trying to change. And so the whole idea behind this research, it's part of the American Worldview Inventory that we do every year, where we look at the worldview of of Americans across the country. And when we broke it out generationally, certainly what we see is that if if we follow the trail of the generations going from the oldest to the youngest, things are definitely moving in the wrong direction. And now we can actually look at this research and identify why. Mm-hmm. Your research said that the result is a culture in which our core institutions, including churches, and the basic ways of life continue to be radically redefined. Well, yeah, and and when you look at a lot of those institutions, whether we're talking about churches or family or schools or government, uh, businesses, they're all going through some very serious changes. And the question is, okay, so change is good, change can work, but where are those changes taking us? And what we see with the changes happening as a result of the shifting within these institutions, and not only shifting in their views, but shifting in the degree of influence that these different institutions have, you know, what what we have to conclude is, okay, what's be, what's happening here is that we are essentially redesigning America. Mm-hmm. America has always had core institutions as part of its its foundation and part of how it moves. But what we see now is that the the shifts taking place are reallocating the influence, the resources, the authority that these different institutions have, and they're moving us away from the traditional foundations of America, which were Bible-based, to a completely different way of looking at life. 
Mm-hmm. George, what did we discover about the millennials? Um, in, in your article, you said they're far more likely than any other generation to, and tell us some of those. Well, they, they define success differently. You know, if, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you would say success is consistent obedience to God. But when we look at millennials, what we say, see is that they would define success as happiness or perhaps personal freedom or maybe productivity without oppression, which is interesting because that's kind of a Marxist idea, mm-hmm. you know, that, that in a culture like ours, you're being oppressed. So, uh, you know, different definition there. Uh, abortion, we found that this is a generation that, despite what a lot of the news reports are talking about, they're perfectly comfortable with abortions being performed if the killing of that unborn child is going to reduce their personal financial or emotional discomfort <laughs> uh, you know they're more they they believe it's morally acceptable in that case because of course what's the purpose of life well it's happiness and so if that unborn child gets born it may well put you in a place of discomfort and insecurity. It could make you unhappy or anxious or depressed. And gosh, you wouldn't want that. So better murder the child. Wow. I know there's more. Yeah. I mean, you know, premarital sex, they, they believe that it's not just okay. They believe that it's the only smart thing to do because their perspective on family is completely different. You know, the whole Marxist ideal, which has been growing in popularity in America, is that family is bad. It's an institution that ought to be eradicated. <laughs> and and what we're finding is that millennials are saying, well, yeah, toward that end, if you're going to wind up with somebody, maybe you don't want to get married, but you might want to live with them for a while or maybe a long time. Well, you better try out the relationship first. So they believe that premarital sex is morally acceptable and intellectually wise. They think that reincarnation is a very real possibility. And this speaks to the the worldview that millennials embrace. Uh, The previous report we put out, what we discovered is that most Americans do not embrace a particular worldview, lock, stock, and barrel. What they do instead is they pick and choose elements from many worldviews they toss them together and come up with a customized worldview. We're calling that syncretism. And this idea of reincarnation being what could possibly happen to them after they die is part of that mix. They've borrowed that from Eastern mysticism. They're borrowing some ideas from Marxism. They're taking some ideas from postmodernism, from secular humanism, and so forth. They put it all together, and they wind up with this kind of a mix. And maybe the most important thing, Bill, and I know I'm talking too much here, but— No, you're not. You're actually talking perfect. Oh, well, in that case, I'll keep going. You're out. Um, (laughs) So what we find here is that millennials are leading the fastest growing faith group in America, faith segment, and that would be what I call the don'ts. Now, the don'ts are people who either do not know if God exists, they don't believe that God exists, or they simply don't care if God exists. 20 years ago, only 8% of Americans fit in the don'ts category. Today, it's more than quadrupled. It's 34%. But when we look at the millennials, they're the the tip of the spear. 43% of them fit that category. Stunning. I, I think I read a stat too, George, that said 75% of people believe there's no such thing as absolute truth. Mm-hmm. And millennials uh, are, are right there, right at about that level where, 
you know, they're saying that, well, if there is truth, I'm the only one that can know it for me. And the only way that I know it is by looking deep inside of myself, Mm -hmm. by feeling it, by intuiting it, by experiencing it. But, But nobody can tell me what truth is. You can't tell me that what I believe is truth is wrong. I'm the only one that can know for me. And so you've got this radical situational truth ethic that's taken over our youngest adult generation. And the scary part about that is, of course, when you think about the implications of it in terms of, say, parenting. Well, this is our primary parenting generation right now with young children. People develop their worldview between 15 to 18 months of age and 13 years of age. Hmm. So these are the people who are parenting those individuals. And what kind of a worldview do you give to your children? What you believe. You can't give what you don't have. And so they're going to be giving their particular perspectives, these very kinds of things that we've been talking about so far, which only guarantees that in the future we're going to have the current mass maybe bumped up a notch unless we really get serious about doing something about it. Mm-hmm. George, what, what's with the parents and the church life of these millennials? What, what went on that produced this group of people? Well, what you find is several things happening. Number one, for at least 30 years now, what we've been finding in the research is that uh, Christian churches in America don't take children seriously. I mean, we have programs, we have curriculum, we have volunteers, all that. But essentially, when you when you step back and take a strategic look at what our churches do, we use children as bait. We don't treat them seriously as spiritual beings, even though their worldview is being developed prior to the age of 13. This is the single most significant time in a person's life. Your worldview is your decision-making center. Every decision you make goes through that worldview, and everybody has a worldview. Everybody develops one. And, and yet what churches do is they treat children as bait because they tend to think adults are where the game is won or lost truth of the matter is, as we've studied worldview now for more than a quarter of a century, what we find is that worldview doesn't change after the age of 13, except in extraordinary circumstances. So yes, it can happen, but typically it doesn't. So churches are focused on a group of people who aren't going to change, who aren't really going to grow very much, and we're basically playing games and just trying to be, uh, you know, have fun times with the individuals whose lives are being shaped. If they're not being shaped in the church, they're being out, shaped outside of the church. And that's exactly what the media and the government are doing. All right. So I don't know if I fully understood the, the bait comment. Does that mean we're trying to use... Oh. Yeah, uh, we use children to get adults into the church. Yeah, so we want to because ser- yeah, okay. yeah, we know if your if your child comes to church and doesn't like it, you're not going to go back. Right. So what we're thinking is, okay, then we got to make sure that they're happy that they tell mom and dad, oh yeah, I had a lot of fun, and that will free up the parents to, oh okay, well then we can come back to this place. Everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing an opportunity for a boomerang effect in the Gen Z, or does the moral decline continue? It appears right now that the moral decline is continuing. Okay. And a large part of the reason for that is that Christian churches are not taking up this cultural challenge to the extent that we need to. This literally is a, a, a do-or-die battle for the soul of America. And our churches, you know, based on our research, are 
trying to figure out how are we doing by measuring how many people show up, how many programs we offer, how many staff people we hire, how much square footage we built out, and how much money we've raised. None of those things have anything to do with discipleship. Wow. Dr. George Barna is my guest. We're going to take a little break and be right back. Welcome back. I've got Dr. George Barna as my guest. I gave his full introduction at the top of the hour. I can't do it again because it eats up four minutes. So um, <laughs> once oh, is enough, man. George. Serious. Once is enough. Oh, okay. Man. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, in a very I... it's a very impressive resume, though. I got to be honest. You've yeah. done you've done good. So well, thanks. Let's talk a little bit more about what millennials are also much less likely than older generations. To, to hold certain positions. Let's hear about those, because this is fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, of course, they're, they're much less likely to be deeply committed to practicing their religious faith. They don't believe that religious faith needs to be or even should be at the center of one's life. When we talk about the compartmentalization of faith, they're happy to do that. We know that this is a group of people that believes, does not believe, they're a lot less likely to believe that the universe was designed and created and is currently maintained by God. And that goes along with their belief that uh, while you know, we exist. They don't believe that it's God who created us. They don't believe that there's a God who created us in his image, or that we have to be concerned about a concept such as sin. Sin isn't something that they take seriously. They believe that people make mistakes, but they don't believe that sin is something that wrecks our lives, that destroys our relationship with God. And part of that is because they don't really buy into the concept of of God in the same way that Christians do. Even though, amazingly enough, Bill, 57% of millennials consider themselves to be Christian. And so you look at all these things, they don't believe that the Bible is the true, reliable, trustworthy Word of God that was given to us for our benefit, to help us lead a a better life, to help us thrive in life. Uh, They don't turn to the Bible, therefore, as a primary source of moral guidance. They don't believe that Satan is real. They don't believe the Holy Spirit is real. They believe that a person named Jesus Christ lived on earth, but that he was a sinner. He was nothing special, not somebody that we really should be beholden to. So, I mean, there's there's a whole different way of understanding what faith looks like in the minds and hearts of these folks, even though almost six out of ten of them call themselves Christian. Mm-hmm. George, what kind of world are millennials seeking? Well, there are a lot of changes that they'd like to see happen. One is that they put a lot more trust in government than most of us do. So they would like to see government get bigger, get more powerful, have more of an impact on our lives. Uh, of course, that's kind of a Marxist uh, ideology there. And that, uh, I keep men- mentioning Marxism because they're very comfortable with a lot of Marxist principles. So they believe that 
you know, there are going to be uh, a lot more episodes of violence and conflict in the near future because each person has to stand up for himself or herself or whatever pronoun people are using these days. And so the idea would be that uh, they're not going to accept the popular ideas. If they have to, you know, they'll get into a conflict over those kinds of things. We know that uh, they don't necessarily buy into the idea about what American history is. They're perfectly comfortable with rewriting that to fit the current narrative. And we know that when it comes to faith, they're, you know, expecting and moving us toward having a redefined Christian community, one that probably will be smaller, numerically speaking, one that will have less influence, less authority in people's lives, uh, it will be less economically robust, and that a lot of the privileges that churches have gotten or houses of faith in the past have gotten, things like uh, maybe uh, tax exemptions or land use exceptions, they don't want that to exist anymore because they don't think the churches should be considered anything special. And then, of course, they also want the family unit to be reshaped. They're less interested in marriage. Uh, we see that their marriage rates are lower. They'll probably continue to be lower. Uh, those who do get married have no qualms about divorce or separation. Uh, they do also think that raising children is not really a goal for themselves. That's not something that they say, yeah, that's going to bring fullness to my life. What they say is that's just going to put limitations and, and boundaries on me, and I don't want to be limited in that way. Shocking. So what happens when biblical truths becomes hate speech? Well, yeah, and obviously we're rapidly approaching that. So it's, I think the other question that, that goes along with that is, so what do we do to prevent that kind of a situation? And I would say that it's really important for us to realize that the way that you influence people is through relationships with them. This is nothing new in the Christian community. We've known for, for you know centuries that the Christian faith is a relational faith, a relationship between us and our Creator God, and a relationship between us and other human beings where we attempt to not only serve those people, but to serve God by how we love those people. And so developing those relationships with these people who right off the bat don't like us because we may be conservative Christians, you know, theologically conservative Christians. They may not like us simply because we're older. We're from a generation whose legacy they don't respect. And nevertheless, we've got to figure out how do we develop common ground with these folks, have ongoing conversations, and in a context of understanding and acceptance and, and, and trying to be compassionate and merciful toward them, helping them to know, but wait, there's a different way of seeing this, and let's take your positions and let's play them out and see what that's going to wind up producing. It may not be the kind of future that you want for yourself, for your friends, uh, or for your nation. And so toward that end, consistency in terms of what we say, what we think, what we do, is going to be absolutely critical. It's one of the reasons why they've turned on the church, mm -hmm. because they tell us that as they've listened to the beliefs that we espouse, they don't see it in our behavior, so they think it's a false religion. Mm. So it's incredibly important for us to be consistent between what we believe and what we do. Yeah. George, a listener named Terry says, 
uh, seems one difference between millennials and the generations before them is the presence of and popularity of social media. How much does this influence their worldviews? It's huge. Yeah. When we study what it is that impacts people in terms of what they think and what they do, we do find that that's one of the top five influence entities in the lives of most younger people today. And in fact, it's going to lead to one of the biggest challenges in our culture, which is how do you build relationships in a culture where we don't teach that skill at home, we don't teach it in schools, and people are spending so much time on their screens that we're losing the capacity to build those interpersonal bonds and bridges. And so maybe that's something that we bring a value to the table, but nevertheless, that is going to continue to be a challenge. George, another listener wants to know, um, what do they think of death and hell? Well, it's interesting, Bill, as, as we've done this, what we found is that only 2% of Americans believe that when they die, they're going to go to hell. Now, that's split between those who believe that there is no such thing as hell and those who believe that they're a good person. In America today, three out of four Americans say that people are basically good. We don't get this idea of original sin, that we're born into sin, that we need Christ as a Savior. And so we simply believe, yeah, maybe the culture leads us astray. Maybe other things are harming who we become. We're basically good folk. So, yeah, people don't take hell very seriously. We find that most Americans don't think very much and certainly not very deeply about things like eternal salvation, eternal consequences for how we choose to live, what we choose to believe. And so that's, that's not always the easiest route to getting somebody to accept Christ, mm-hmm. simply talking about eternal salvation. Yeah. George, let's see if we can end on kind of a high note here. Another listener <laughs> said, this is sad, depressing, feels like doom and gloom. Yeah, there's a guy who has me speak at a lot of events, and before he lets me take the stage, he he always yells out to the back, hide the razor blades. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. It's not easy for me to get up in the morning. But you know what? The, the reality is, what a fabulous time to be alive. Amen. Because you look at the, the mess that our culture is in, and those of us who know Jesus Christ as, as our Savior understand he is the solution. He is in control. He has the power to change all of this. And so if we're willing to commit ourselves to being part of the remnant of passionate believers who God will use to turn this nation around, then this is a fabulous time to be alive. What we have to do is simply be committed to knowing God's will and doing it day after day after day, no matter how tough it is out there in the marketplace. Thank you so much, George. I know you have another interview right after this, so my prayer is you don't have as much fun as you did with me. I, I certainly won't have my background shredded <laughs> as much as I did here, but yeah, whatever. All right. Have, <laughs> have a great weekend, George. Great to be with you. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Take care. Dr. George Barna has been my guest. We're take a little break. We come back. We're going to jump back in to that wonderful book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington. It's all coming up next. And then Hour 2 is going to be at Encore Performance with Ken Samples.
so glad to be back studying the book of John. I cannot wait for our series to continue with my friend and special guest, Dr. Greg Heddington. We're going to jump right into the 11th chapter of John today. Greg, welcome back. That's it. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, resume our study. Let's get going. All right. Well, this lesson is entitled The Resurrection and the Life, and the central idea for the first half of the lesson is God's timing always serves His purpose. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was not our Lord's last miracle, but it was His greatest apart from His own resurrection, and it was the miracle that aroused the most response both from His friends and enemies. It's no accident that John chose this miracle as the seventh sign in his gospel, because number seven is the Jewish number of completion. Now, let's be honest. If Jesus, the Son of God, can do nothing about death, then whatever else he does, he he, he no longer amounts to anything for us. Mm -hmm. Death is humanity's last enemy, and Jesus has, in fact, defeated this horrible enemy totally and permanently and made a way for us to live forever. So thank you, Lord. Let's just start with that. If you're taking notes, Roman number one, the setting. In the small Judean village of Bethany lived a family that was very dear to Jesus, composed of two sisters, Mary and Martha. They also had a dear friend, Lazarus, and these three were like an extended family to Jesus. It would have been typical for all three to be married, even though their spouses are not mentioned in Scripture. Well, one day, Jesus is ministering east of the Jordan River, and a messenger arrives from the sisters telling him, the one you love is ill. Now, it's only the beloved disciple who's described with such love in this gospel as that. Verse 5 says, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And the Greek word for love there is agape, which we've learned earlier, has been coined by the Apostle Paul, who wrote chronologically earlier than John's gospel. And agape was redefined by him to mean God's unconditional love. And since that was the kind of love Jesus had for them, it's no surprise that the sisters kept up with the whereabouts of Jesus, and they knew exactly where he was to be found. So the messenger from the sisters likely takes one day to find Jesus, who's perhaps 20 miles away. The next day, Jesus sends back the encouraging message that this illness does not lead to death. He tells his apostles that Lazarus has, quote, fallen asleep, which is a common New Testament euphemism for death, But the apostles misunderstand him, so he has to say, Lazarus is dead. Now, the apostles are confounded. They must be thinking three things. First, dead? Lord, who figured you must have been asleep, because why would you allow your dear friend to get sick, much less die? Second, Lord, why didn't you heal him from the distance like you did that that son of the official? I mean, that was awesome, especially since you didn't even know the boy. And now this has happened to your close friend, Lazarus? And third, Lord, you know you have many enemies in Jerusalem, and Bethany is only two miles from there, right? So, I mean, they probably have your face on the most wanted poster at the post office. Do you really think it's worth the risk going there, Lord? So no matter what he's thinking, Jesus remains where he is for two more days. Roman numeral two, what might this incident so far mean to us today? One thing it illustrates is the central idea for the first half of this lesson, which is God's timing always serves his purpose. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' sickness, but chose not to because it was an opportunity to glorify the Father. Now, life is tough for everyone today. I mean, the majority of believers in the world have serious problems of 
health issues, lack of food, oppressive government, and threats to their life because of their faith. So it's not God's priority that we believers are comfortable in life, and we have no promises from Scripture that believers have immunity from trouble. But it is important and scriptural that we experience his peace and glorify God in the midst of all that we experience by faith in him. But we know our faith is no guarantee that we will be sheltered from problems and pain in spite of the fact that we love the Lord and he loves us. After all, the father loves his son and yet permitted him to experience the agony and death of the cross. So we must not think that love and suffering are incompatible. Growing in our trust relationship with the Lord is our priority. The priority is to be like Christ. God is more interested in our having a closer relationship with him than in giving us what we want. And I hate to say it, but suffering can connect us more deeply deeply with the Lord. And some of my friends who have suffered for years have a much more intimate relationship with Jesus than I do or others do who have not suffered as much. No matter where we are, the Spirit of God is there with us, and we live by faith, not by sight. Roman numeral three, the incident at Bethany. Day one, Jesus receives the message about Lazarus. Day two, the messenger returns the Jesus message to the sisters. Day three, Jesus continues his ministry where he is. And day four, Jesus arrives in Bethany, and he shows compassion to both Martha and Mary. Now, the sisters are quite different in their personalities. Martha is the worker, the active one, so it's no surprise she rushes out to meet Jesus. On the other hand, Mary is the contemplative one who earlier sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his words, so now she's sitting in the house weeping with her friends. We all need both qualities, both attributes in our life, and there is an old Wesley hymn that speaks of that balanced life with these lyrics. Faithful to my Lord's command, I still would choose the better part. Serve with careful Martha's hands and loving Mary's heart. So Martha tells Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. Now Martha assumes Jesus is referring to the resurrection in the last days that the prophet Daniel spoke about. But Jesus is referring to the present and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Wow, what a promise Jesus makes to us. Well, Martha affirms her faith in Jesus, never even guessing what Jesus has in mind to do in the next few moments. Martha then calls Mary, and Mary repeats the same words that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. Jesus shows his humanity when he's deeply moved by the weepings of Mary and the others and We now have the shortest verse in Scripture, which is what? It's just two words. Jesus wept. It's a great comfort to us that Jesus understands our afflictions and sorrows because he entered into our experiences in his humanness and knows how we feel when we are sad or devastated or however we're feeling because he was one of us. He also shows his humanity when he has to ask where Lazarus is buried. This shows that Jesus never used his divine powers when normal human beings would suffice. Now, if any of you have read from the King James Version of Scripture written back in uh, 1612, the King's English, you'll recall that memorable word that comes out of 
verse 39, which and those words are, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Well, whichever version you use, I think we'd agree that after four days, Lazarus, no doubt, stinketh. <laughs> but that does not dissuade Jesus as he, number one, tells people to remove the stone sealing the tomb. Number two, thanks the Father publicly for answering his prayer to create faith in those standing around the tomb. And number three, in a loud voice cries out, Lazarus, come out. As a Puritan scholar once said, if Jesus had not directed those words specifically to Lazarus when he commanded him to come out, Jesus would have emptied the entire cemetery. <laughs> well, and, and, and he does come out. And since Lazarus is all bound up with strips of linen, he probably hobbles out of the tomb. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. So his friend then unbind him from his grave clothes. But there's also a, a metaphorical unbinding of anyone who trusts Christ because they are set free from the graveyard of sin. All us people are spiritually dead, but some are more decayed than others because of their lifestyle. Although no one can be more dead spiritually than another. I mean, when you're dead, you're dead. And only by the power of God can anyone be given new freedom to fully live the abundant life that Jesus promised. Although there are no recorded words of Lazarus in the Gospels, the fact that he began to walk around fully alive every day was enough to convince many to believe in Jesus as Messiah, although some religious leaders wanted to see him dead so they could get rid of the evidence that Jesus had resurrected this man. Chapter 11 also tells us many Jews believed in him, while others did not, but instead went to the Pharisees and reported what they had seen. Nothing has changed today because one either believes or does not believe. There is no third option. And as we've seen over and over in John, seeing is not necessarily believing. Miracles alone cannot provoke faith. For example, consider the parable Jesus gives in Luke 16 when a poor man dies and goes to heaven, while the rich man, who had seen the poor man begging daily on the street but ignored him, goes to hell. The rich man is in agony in hell and calls to Father Abraham, who's in heaven, to send a messenger to warn his five brothers about the horrors of hell, which will be their destiny if they do not change. Abraham says to the man, They have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. And the man replies, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. And Abraham responds, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Two points here are clear. First, there are no second chances about making choices of any kind once we're dead, in spite of what a lot of movies might suggest. Secondly, Scripture tells us that everyone has a chance to know God and choose to follow him. Romans 1 is clear that there is no excuse for someone to say they don't know God. And miracles do not of themselves transform someone's heart. Because although miracles reveal the power of God, they do not always communicate the grace of God. Let me say this again. Although miracles reveal the power of God, they do not always communicate the grace of God. 
And many people living in Jerusalem will later refuse to believe in Jesus as Messiah, despite Jesus' return from death. As Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen, and that's us, and still believe. That's John 20, verse 29. So one thing that continues throughout Scripture is believing is seen, and not seen is believing. Now, one of the most popular places for believers to visit in Jerusalem is the location of the tomb where Jesus was buried, which now has a church built over it. And it's the same location, of course, where Jesus was also resurrected. Although the guidebooks refer to it as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Arab believers who live in the city refer to it as the Church of the Resurrection. Those Arab Christians want to remember not the tomb, but the resurrection life of Jesus that came from that tomb. It's a place of victory in life, not sorrow and defeat. Now, at the funeral of a loved one, yes, we grieve and express sorrow that comes with a loss. And we're the ones, after all, left on earth to live with that loss. But if the one who's died is a Christ follower, then we know that because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we can have sad feelings, but still celebrate their victory over death because we know the truth. And, Bill, that brings us to Roman numeral four. I love this. We're going to take a little break. Dr. Greg Heddington is our guest as we continue our study on the book of John. We're in chapter 11. If you didn't know, we'll be right back. Make sure your Bibles are open and notepads are out. We'll be right back. Dr. Greg Heddington, as we continue our study in John, and we're uh, in John chapter 11. I love this chapter, Greg. Yes, it is powerful. Yeah, I know. And I think we're up to Roman numeral four. Yeah, Roman according numeral to my calculations. four. Yeah. That's right. Mary and Martha, this is really the second half of the lesson. And turning to this different topic, as we read about Jesus' dealings with Martha and Mary, I find it culturally encouraging that Jesus treats Mary and Martha with such respect. In verse 28, Martha calls Jesus teacher which reminds us of Jesus' appearance in Martha's house in Luke 10, where he's teaching a group of followers. Now, this is significant because women were not instructed by rabbis in the first century. Although they were not among the 12 apostles, these women were not in any way treated as second-class disciples. Jesus dignifies these women, along with his other followers, as full participants, and they make up the majority group of his followers. Lazarus, Mary, and, and Martha are likely extended family for Jesus. So when Lazarus became fatally ill, the sisters knew immediately how to locate Jesus, despite the fact that he's far away. So I'd like to talk about Roman numeral five, how Jesus viewed women, because it was so countercultural. The presence of women as the larger group of Jesus' followers is remarkable. In the first century Middle East, as well as most of the ancient world, and much of it today, the role of women was largely limited to being homebound wives and mothers. Although some aspects of Jewish culture were more pro-woman than other societies at the time, women were still treated as little more than possessions. The first century historian Josephus, despite being a well-educated Jew, 
claimed that it was, quote, the teaching of Scripture that a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. Now, of course, this, quote, Scripture, he says, is, uh, is certainly not anywhere in our Scripture. The fact that such negative views of women are widely held is seen in the disciple, in the disciples' surprise when they see Jesus talking to a woman of Samaria back in John 4. So here are some reasons why the views Jesus had of women were radical in his day. Number one, the followers of Jesus included women, some of whom traveled with him and the apostles. Now, this meant that both he and the Twelve risked allegations of immorality. Number two, women played a major role in the events leading up to the cross. The only followers who stayed with Jesus at the cross, apart from John the Apostle, were women. Number three, women are prominent in the account of the resurrection. The Gospel of John tells us how the risen Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, the one who had early been delivered from seven demons, and Jesus instructed her to, quote, go and tell the brothers. Remarkably, Mary ended up preaching the good news to the apostles. And that's in John 20. Number four, Jesus cared for women. There are several places where we're told that Jesus healed them. For example, he encountered a widow burying her only son, who would have been the woman's sole means of support. That's in Luke 7. And it says, When Jesus saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion and said, Don't cry. And then he raised her son from the dead. Now, number five. In his parables, Jesus makes almost equal use of images from the world of women and men and uses women as positive role models. In fact, the one parable about a woman who searches for a lost coin, the woman represents God. That's back in Luke 15. Roman, excuse me, number six, Jesus' teachings on divorce is revealing. In the culture of the day, a man could treat his wife as little more than property, and divorce was easy. The Jewish historian, again, Josephus, calmly writes this, at this period of time, I divorced my wife, being displeased, displeased at her behavior. Well, according to Deuteronomy 24, a man could divorce his wife for anything that was considered shameful or offensive to the husband. Without going into detail, Jesus taught that divorce was a much more serious matter since it had become so widespread and easy to obtain. Roman numeral 6, regarding other cultural matters. Now, some people would say that Jesus should have done more for the role of women. Now, this is a point worth considering. In fact, let's broaden this discussion. When we deal with anyone who falls below our contemporary standards in such important issues as gender and racial equality, for instance, why did neither Jesus nor Paul condemn slavery, then we often hear this defense. Oh, come on, give them a break. Let's be fair, they were a product of their time. You ever heard that expression? That explanation is, is, yeah, why Jesus didn't condemn gender or racial inequality. I've heard that. But we cannot use that as an excuse for Jesus. Why? Because in the area of morals, Jesus was not a product of his time. So here's three responses that could be made regarding why Jesus did not push for the cultural standards that we in the U.S. have today. First, for us to judge someone from a distant culture and a distant time by our standards is just as unsympathetic and irrational as someone today criticizing us for the same thing according to their culture. Second, although Jesus stood outside of his time, 
he did not and could not stand completely outside his culture. For him to have tried to impose our modern standards on the ancient world would have been catastrophic for him and his mission. Why? Because he had so many enemies who opposed him for menial issues like healing people on the Sabbath and not obeying minor Jewish laws. So if he had tried to impose standards of how Americans regard women today or how we are attempting to enforce justice for various racial groups now, then all attention would focus on those violations of Jewish culture rather than the most important message, that he was the Savior, Messiah. He is the Son of God, the only hope for the world, the resurrection, and the life. Returning to the subject of women, Jesus pushed things as far as his world in the first century allowed him to go, and he did begin the process for these matters to grow further in the future. So Jesus cannot be blamed for the fact that his followers today have declined to challenge the culture regarding women and racial equality. And third, it is absurd for anyone to criticize Jesus for not being radical enough when he was crucified precisely because he was too radical. To summarize the issue of women and equality in one sentence, in a world that considered women to be markedly inferior to men, and who were to be submissive to men, would we observe that Jesus saw them as human beings of equal worth and dignity, then we conclude Jesus was righteously radical in his day. Number seven, in conclusion, the resurrection of Lazarus, would have, uh, who would live temporarily until he died a second time, was an astonishing miracle that led many people to faith in Christ. But it's minor in comparison to the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Before Jesus made his historic visit to earth, it would have been inconceivable in the Greco-Roman world, which based its political life on power, that a religion based on humility, sacrifice, and serving others would be able to make any inroads into society. But in time... Christianity encouraged kings and kingdoms, rewrote laws, and sparked revolutions the world over. It planted in Western conscience the concept of human rights, obligations to the poor, and the defense of the weak. In fact, through weakness, Christ has conquered the world. So what does that mean for us? Three, three questions, three answers. First, how strongly do we not only believe that, but are willing to live it? What's the answer on that? Second, will we trust that God's timing always serves his purpose? We need to answer that. Third, will we have the humility and the courage to share the good news with others, telling them that the only way to have purpose in this, this life, and then eternal life, is through commitment to Jesus as the Son of God? Bill, those are some of my thoughts. Those are outstanding. You know, one of the uh, points you made, Greg, was, and I love this point, and I love this about Jesus, uh, just how radically different Jesus treated women yes. in the culture. That's so interesting to me. Uh, do you have, we only have a couple minutes left. Can you, uh, do you have any more comments about that? Well, here's one comment. Jesus lived in a first century world, similar to certain strict Muslim countries, which still have not changed. And it was a world which men believed it was women who were considered to be the source of sexual sin. 
Evidently, that goes back to their understanding that it was Eve who first tempted Adam, even as they give the serpent a free pass in that account. So I don't really understand the reasoning behind it. And after all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blames men and not women for lust. And in Luke 7, Jesus publicly accepts honor from a woman who is euphemistically described as having lived a sinful life, and he defends her against her accusers. In John 8, when a woman is caught in adultery, Jesus refuses to condemn her, and after sharing, shaming her male accusers to leave, Jesus lets her go with a warning. That's another one, Bill. I mean, there's there's a few others, but... Um, yeah, that's uh, solid. That's really great uh, scriptural illustrations. I appreciate that. Gives oh, my us, pleasure. Yeah, it gives us a lot to study, and I, I love that we can go back into John and look at chapter 11 with fresh eyes. It's really uh, an outstanding study, Greg. Thank you so much once oh, again. Thank you. Yeah. We'll uh, take a short break. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. Uh, we have been studying John chapter 11. We're going to put all these together on one series page when we complete our study. Looking forward to that as well. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.